Welcome to This Bank of Beer Food. I'm Nathan Palin. Before we officially start, I wanted to ask you, if you have a moment, if you like what you're hearing in the show and you want to give us a little helping hand, please find an avenue to rate the show and leave a review. I know Apple Podcasts says away. I think Spotify does too. I bet there's others. Just so you know, I produce this whole show myself. I research the facts, record the interviews, edit the content, cook the food, eat the food. I even write all the songs that you hear in between segments. It's a lot of work. All I ask is you share the good news to someone who likes music history, cooking, and thinking outside the tent. Everyone says, box, not me. Please enjoy the next delicious installment of This Thing Could Be Your Food. Really deep, deep, deep. Thanks for downloading another great episode of This Bank Could Be Your Food. As I said before, I'm Nathan Palin, coming to you from an apartment located in beautiful Brooklyn, New York, Greenpoint. It's getting crowded here. Everybody's moving to Greenpoint, driving the prices up. I understand, though, it's a killer food scene, so many great restaurants, bakeries, what have you. But who cares about my neighborhood? Today, the main course is The Who. Who doesn't love The Who? You? Well, even if you don't, they are a fascinating band with a thick history, and I know just the person for the job. Joining me today is my old professor, Eric Chernov. Eric is a teacher at Queens College, teaching music theory, ear training, as well as some classes on popular music. He has a doctorate in music theory and historical musicology. We met because I took his writing class on British rock music of the 1960s, for which I got an A+. In his class, our main source reading material was the Pete Townsend autobiography. So, I already happen to know that Eric's a devout fan of the music of Pete, Roger, Keith, and John. So, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you part one of two parts of a lengthy and jam-packed discussion of The Who! The other day when we were kind of texting or whatever about doing this thing, <clears throat> you had mentioned that you had were going through the Roger Daltrey autobiography. Yes. Which I, I read, of course, when it came out, but I haven't read it since then. And mm. one of the things that struck me when I was reading it is, you know, The Who went through four name changes. Mm -hmm. uh, they started as the Detours, then they became the Who, then they became the High Numbers, and then they became the Who. So yeah. th three names, four, you know, yeah. incarnations. And everybody seems clear on how they ended up as the High Numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and it was definitely through Pete Meaden and that, that connection with the mods and all that. Um but Roger Daltrey, when I read through the autobiography, had something I had never, ever heard anybody ever talk about. And he was saying that Pete Meaden's whole thing, of course, was the mod culture. And, you know, he was a couple of years older than them. But, you know, that means he was 22 and they were 19, whatever. Mm -hmm. And the way he came up with the high numbers was just following the fashions of that week. And the fashion that week happened to have been uh, bowling shoes. And so if you had a high numbered bowling shoe, that's how it was. Oh. And I, I had never heard any, I mean, Richard Barnes doesn't say that's how yeah. it happens. You, know, you go yeah. down all your list of everybody talking about it because of course a number is like a ticket or a, yeah. you know, a mod mm -hmm. and a high number would be like a more powerful mod or whatever. Yeah, that's what I always thought that meant. I, no. That's what pretty much everybody has said wow. for the past half of my years. But there it is, Roger's yeah. saying, you know, sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah memory is uh, sometimes uh, gets uh, lost in a vague haze of delirium, as yeah. Pete might say. Yeah, I, that's an interesting thing about the band is that they're like frequently associated with the entire mod movement of the 60s in England and Britain and all that. Uh, and, and like the Who really just joined it for the sake of being able to become popular. Like they didn't really care about it all that much. I Yeah, I think that might be overstaying it. But, um, you know, if, if you're looking for a, uh, you know, bonafide mod band, then probably the small faces is where to go. Sure. Because they really were mods. Listen, it's been three months since I was 
And the Who kind of joined that. They yeah. they were just after it started, yeah. uh, but they fully embraced it. I oh, mean, certainly. They, the, I mean, they had to to appear authentic. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that Pete kind of realized very early because you know he had the art school connection and so he was very much into I have to find a patron I've got to find you know somebody who's going to pay me for what I'm doing and mm. who I can fulfill the brief and all that stuff yeah and one of the things that the who did was he would reflect back on the audience what the audience was doing. And that was a big part of the very early days. So, you know, he would see somebody do a dance move at you know the railway or whatever mm. and then do it on stage. And then everybody starts doing it thinking that, you know, Pete <laughs> like invented it. Or, sure. Look, he started this new dance thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... But that isn't to say that Pete didn't invent a whole mountain of things. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, At least if you ask Pete, he will say that he invented a mountain of things. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's... it's yeah. Some things are debatable. Oh, lots of things are debatable. Yeah. You know, strangely, the one thing that he never takes credit for is the windmill. <clears throat> you know, he said that he kind of... They did a gig with the Stones... And we warmed the audience up. The stones were about to go on, and Keith Richard was limbering up. He was kind of getting down on his knees and getting his blood going. And one of the things that he did is he went like that with one arm and like that with the other arm. And as he was doing that with the other arm, the curtain opened. And he continued to do it as the curtain opened. So for about a year, I thought I was just copying my hero. Literally just copying. Anyway, I then saw the stones two or three times more and Keith wasn't doing it. I went up to him and I said to him something like, do you mind that I copied, you know, your arm swing technique? And he looked at me like I was a germ and I realized that he didn't remember doing it. So uh, I kept it in my act. But there's actually early film of Pete windmilling, basically, um, which I think predates the, the date that that could have happened with the stones. Oh. So again, it just goes back to what we were saying earlier of one's memory, you know, and as you get older, it just gets worse. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> How did you get into the who in the first place? Would you say, do you have like a, a oh, yeah. source memory? Oh, absolutely. Actually, funny enough. Um, and this, this is quite incredible. Um, uh, my second earliest memory in life, I mean that literally my second memory in life is um, going to Nantasket Beach in Massachusetts mm -hmm. uh, with my brothers and my, my parents and the three of us, the brothers, are in the back seat, you mm -hmm. know, schmushed together. And I'm the youngest, so I'm in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and Magic Bus came on and it was just the three of us singing along with it. Yeah, oh, so nice. I very, very much grew up with kind of a weird, constantly anachronistic uh, existence in in two very distinct ways. So my, I, I mentioned I'm the youngest of the brothers, my eldest brother, um, you know, the who is a little bit more his time frame. <clears throat> but of course, he was listening to all sorts of things, the who, but also... Um, pretty much all of the invasion bands and all sorts of rock bands and things like that. So that very much influenced, you know, it's like mother's milk to me, all of that stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and then my, my parents, uh, particularly my dad, um, I get a lot of things from his era as well that we would listen to. So what, what were your parents music? Uh, well, musically, not particularly interesting. I mean, they would listen to light orchestral and Montavani okay. and stuff like that. Sure. But amazingly, they were incredibly supportive, first off, of, of any musical things that me or my brothers wanted to do, but also very hands-off about what we could or would listen to. I mean, you know, so for example, you know, before we started recording, I was mentioning the uh, All the Best Cowboys album. You know, and I was fairly young when it came out. And, you know, I would listen to it a lot. Uh, it's a great, great album. I don't and know that album at all. 
oh, that's a mistake. Okay. That is a great, great album. It's got, um, every song has something worth listening to. One of the running metaphors in his writing, which is uh, the power of um, essentially what he would say is God as uh, the sea and that all rivers flow the sea. And mm. so no matter how dirty you get in your life, no matter how polluted you are, no matter how uh, overbearing things become, the sea won't refuse any river. Yeah. And I'm not sure how many people you know, realize this. There are so many of these sorts of references in his writing since just before Tommy came out. And and sometimes they're, I don't want to be misunderstood, um, which, by the way, is a great Pete Townsend song, Misunderstood. I always feel I should be somewhere else. I feel impatient like a girl on the shelf. But, um... I'm not saying that everything he writes is is kind of a sacred or a spiritual or something. Um, he certainly has very secular pieces. Sure. But pictures of Lily. Pictures of Lily. <laughs> yes. Pictures of Lily. But even things that you wouldn't think had a spiritual angle do. Um, and the, 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 the issue is often when that happens, uh, he'll couch it in a way that first off maybe won't be obvious or he'll get the crowd riled up so that they're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. So like a classic example of that is who are you? It's this thing, you know, he met this a couple of the Sex Pistols and he was just got out of this really awful hours and hours long meeting with these record executives. And, uh, you know, he's drunk and throwing punches and all that. And so you're thinking, well, that's pretty earthy, you yeah. know. But actually the entire last stanza is about redemption and about... Um, you know, healing power and it makes direct references to Baba and Baba's life. But by that point, the whole crowd's going, yeah, who are you, man? You know, and yeah. uh, rock fists up and all that. You know, it was interesting that you brought up uh, the, the punk thing because it seems that the Who was like the one band that was not thrown into the, you know, grandpa's classic rock thing. They, they were able to continue as a, as their own unit without being shunned as like, oh, this is outdated. We're not listening to this garbage anymore. Like sort of the whole like responsive punk was more like your ELP and, you know, like everything turning really proggy and really like self-indulgent and the who were spared. They, they, you know, they in fact did a giant tour with the, the clash. Right. Yeah. Like in, you know, as the clash were becoming like the next big thing. Yeah. That was an interesting period in both of their histories. I mean, you're, what, what you're essentially talking about is when, <laughs> when they did their first farewell, uh, you know, back in 82. Um, and the clash were in a very strange moment in their history as well. And, you know, they were having issues with Topper. Um, and, you know, It's Hard came out in 82. Um, which is talking about the the canonical studio album stuff is pretty universally considered kind of not their finest hour. Let's no, put it that way. No. But, but but it's hard as is this the last record and the second record with well it's the last record drummer in the first uh, kind of large scale thing. They don't release another one for over twenty years, but there are actually two other albums after it, studio albums. Oh. So you've got Endless Wire, um, which uh, is quite good. I've I've actually been listening to stuff off of that a little bit more recently. What's the hit off um, of that? That the, actually, funny enough, I'm not sure there was a, a bona fide hit, but they they have a song on it called um, "We've Got a Hit." <laughs> it's like the name of the song. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, I've got 
uh, copy here. You uh, really um, came prepared today, my friend. Yeah. Uh, we've got basically the entire discography of, of The Who in, in, in physical form, which yes. is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, old school. Yeah. Um, so, and then they actually recently... See, this is where the COVID brain comes in. I'm going to say last year, but it's probably like two or three years ago. Sure. Um, released another studio album called Who, um, which is really good. Yeah, it's a great record, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I was a little bit maybe apprehensive is the best word to to give it a listen because I had heard, of course, Endless Wire when it came out. And I did. I don't hate Endless Wire, but it was just, uh, yeah. you know, I wasn't quite feeling quite it at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then I put on Who, and yeah, I was really impressed. Yeah, it so. took them a long time to kind of find the right drummer. Yeah, they ended up with Zach. Um, yeah. Which is good. I mean, you know, I'm one of these. Now, for, for those of you who don't know who Zach is, yeah. his last name is Starkey, and he just happens to be the son of uh, famed drummer Ringo Starr of yes. the Beatles. So. R- Richard Starkey. Yeah. 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 Pretty good pedigree, pedigree there. Yeah, well, you know, Keith Moon was his basically his godfather. He gave him his first drum set, taught him, quote unquote, taught him how to play. Yeah, kind of, um, kind of t- like t- treated him more like a son than his own children. Ah, uh, yeah, very much so, in in to a certain degree. So Keith has a daughter, Mandy, and kind of, I mean, Keith was many things, ready to be a father, maybe not one of them. Yeah. But yeah, Zach, I mean, they, they did do several other, or at least a few other drummers along the way. Mm. Um, I mean, Simon Phillips played with them in 89. So that was the 25th anniversary for The Who. So they went out on an anniversary tour with a, with a quote-unquote big band. Was that when they, about when they did the pay-per-view of uh, Quadrophenia? Uh, it wasn't Guadalupe, it was Tommy. Okay. Um, so right. that, that year was Tommy. They they performed it twice, and the one that was pay-per-view was at the um, Universal Amphitheater in L.A. Okay. Um, didn't Phil Collins play drums with them? No, he didn't play drums with that. Phil Collins actually appeared as Uncle Ernie. Okay. On that. That's um, what it was. Yep, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. So it, it was a heck of a lineup. It's, it's actually a great show. A lot of people hate that that tour and, it, well, Maybe that band and that incarnation. Sure, I I really like it. I think a lot of things work. Uh, so before we get too crazy here, we do have to bring back the the source of uh, this podcast, which is this band could be your food. Yes, uh, we uh, we're, we're talking about the Who, and and the Who is one of those bands. Uh, they're 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 a very English band, and uh, the problem with English bands, in my mind, is that there's too many great English bands and not enough great English cuisine. Frequently, whenever I bring up an English band, they're like, oh yeah, they're fish and chips. And it's like, no, every English band can't be fish and chips. <laughs> How dare you? Now, sure they can. <laughs> there is a band that is going to be fish and chips. We haven't done it yet, but just don't stop telling me fish and chips, people. Anyways, <laughs> uh, next to fish and chips, there's the, you've got a couple more uh, big, well-known English delicacies. Quote unquote. unquote. Uh, And when you're going to throw the Who in the mix, there's a lot of things to think about with the Who. The Who are a collection of four very individual characters that might otherwise, on their own, not be anything noteworthy. I mean, certainly Keith Moon, I'm sure wherever you drop him, it's going to be an exciting show. Um, You know, his his old band, The Beachcombers, also a very good band, uh, more of a surfy band. Roger Daltrey, the singer, essentially the who is his band. Like he more or less started it. He's the pivot point. Yeah, well, it starts that way. Yeah, yeah I think that maybe we can draw a delineation maybe. So it very much- That's when it's the detours. Yeah, and it, and it is Roger's band. And, yeah. uh, you know, and he punctuates, as he you know, was noted, he punctuated his thoughts with punches, quite literally. Sure. You know, yeah. it's my band, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, part of this is because uh, <clears throat> when he was very young, he had gotten hit in the jaw super hard. Yeah. Um, and to the point, like with the doctors in those days, they, they went to the hospital and they said, oh, you're fine. <laughs> and then many days later, all of a sudden, his jaw is, is larger than the rest of his head. And as he went to the hospital... Uh, he was sitting there and apparently 
like a hole had developed where all the pus was and it started dripping all over him and it made the entire hospital stink because yeah. of the abscess and all of the gross stuff in his face. Anyways, the ending result, they, they had, I think they had to break his jaw to get it to go back into its spot. And he said he no longer could feel his jaw, yeah. which made him a prime fighter. Yeah. Because- yeah. Well, he's also the only one of them who really was working class. Pete is from Ealing and, you know, grew up a musical family and went to art school mm-hmm. and all of this. I yes. mean, Roger is really... Which was which was uh, required by all English bands that one of them be from art school. You go have at least one, yeah. yeah. Though it should be noted that art school, I mean, yeah, that there is obviously the art aspect of that. Of that, and for Pete, that that is really crucial. But it's a lot of kids ended up going there because it is the alternative to okay, I can't get into Oxbridge, um, but maybe not a vocational thing. Sure. So it's not like everybody who's going there is going to, you know, show incredible promise as a, as a you know a painter or something like of that. Course. It's the equivalent but, of today, like people go for like Eng- English lit. <laughs> you, you Maybe just that's kinda, always been the case. You just know? go to go to school, you know, so that you can have the experience of going through college. But anyways, yeah. it's a diverse group of characters. And when you put them all together, you have the ingredients that are the who. And many will say without those four main ingredients, you don't have the who anymore. And it's it's been said even since Keith Moon's death when he left and they brought in the drummer from The Faces. Yeah, Kenny Jones. Kenny Jones. Yeah. And it things weren't the same. People revolted, more or less. And the band themselves sort of imploded as they were trying to do it. And we'll say say themselves that it was not the right recipe. And as as time goes on, they do sort of find a way to get the musicians to translate the original material to an extent, but it's still it's not the same. And the same goes for this this food. Uh you you have like the classic lineup. And you can interchange things, and it's it's not quite the same. It's close. You feel like you're getting somewhat of an experience, but there's usually like, hey, it would have been nice if we would have had X, Y, or Z. Right. And, you know, The Who, even though they're classically English, as we say, although, musically speaking, one of the things that cracks me up is he was one of, Roger Daltrey is one of the first singers that I really noticed that sung with an American accent. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and he's clearly not an American. Yeah, well, a lot of the the, the British groups um, did, uh, and that's a lot. Of it's just where they, well, wh- how are they coming to this music in the first place? You sure. know, there are a couple who really stand out because they don't do that in very early days. I sure. mean, you listen to Sid Barrett. There's just no yes. sugarcoating. Yep, yep. Yeah, this is not a guy pretending to be from Alabama. You know, like, you know, compare it with uh, Jimmy Page appears on the Hugh Weldon show when he's 14 years old. And, I mean, literally, with the Skiffle Group, with the Skiffle group singing the Cotton song. I mean, So, uh, yeah, all of them kind of start with this faux American yes. thing. Yeah. But alas, we're, we're, they're still really tried and true in English band. They took, in, they took in the mod culture, <laughs> which is very specifically British. And um, so we're going to sign them, even though maybe they're not really a, a, a breakfast band. <laughs> this isn't necessarily a breakfast that you have to eat at breakfast time. It can be eaten whenever it is that you get up, maybe 3 p.m. So we're going to say the who is a full English breakfast, or as they say, an English fry up. A fry up, yeah. yeah. Here we go. Most of the classic rock that I got into as a kid was directly responsible for my parents. So, you know, whatever they listened to, I did. And The Who was not in there. 
Mm-hmm. So I had to come to them later in life. The drummer of the Irish rock band I was in called The Kissers, our drummer was an enormous Keith Moon fan. And he's really the first one to make me like a, a Who compilation CD. Mm-hmm. And I told him, you know, give me give me the not so popular tunes. And so it's, you know, it's, it's great. It's do, good. do you remember what any of them were? Jeez. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's uh, Pictures of Lilies on there, Substitute. What is the other rock opera? Uh, you mean a quick one? Yeah, quick or, one, or, yeah. Quick one while he's, while he's away. away. Yeah. Uh, that's all I can remember at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a deep dive, and, I, and I, I totally appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. And also, it was kind of funny that that, that was when I realized that uh, Keith Moon plays drums basically one way. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think, and this has been commented on before, this is certainly not an original idea of mine, but uh, but it's a very important point to make that because of the flash they played with and the style they played at, and very much because of his lifestyle, uh, it's usually overlooked what an incredibly musical guy he was. Oh, yeah, you 100%. Know? That um, isn't to say that he isn't. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, when he plays, um, he... I mean, he was a very, very frustrated wannabe singer. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a reason why he was frustrated uh, from doing it, too. Yeah. Um, but if you, All you have to do is listen to his solo album, Two Sides of the Moon. Yeah. It has issues. Yeah. Though he did okay carrying a bellboy on Quadrophenia, but that but that's a very specific um, yes. context. But you know, he it, his playing, he will very often, usually, actually go with Roger and what he's doing, and he's not nearly as flamboyant um, in those moments. He's clearly kind of singing while he's doing it. Yes. So, sometimes, certainly live, he would do that, and then he'll do a drum fill and yes. know, fall off the end of the drum yeah. uh, set, but he'll actually scream yeah, during but, it. But so. those drum fills will happen like in the spaces when the singing isn't happening. So that's kind of part of like the whole style. And, it, and this is sort of what, what classic pop is. This is what the Beatles were really good at doing. When, when something, when you weren't singing, you always knew where you, your attention was focused. Yeah. You were, there was always a melody or there was a sound or there's something and th- there's never, there's no dead space. Yeah. They, they trim all mm-hmm. the fat. And so, you know, that's what the who more or less did by having a drum fill. Yeah. Anytime that there isn't a, a major thing happening. Yeah. You know, and there are certain, it's very easy, particularly for a casual listener to think that, well, Keith would just do whatever, you know, during these moments, but there are certain songs and certain, uh, things that get performed where he is incredibly consistent. So, for example, um, my generation, mm-hmm. if you listen to pretty much any live performance, not just the, the the epic one on Live at Leeds, but any of them, he's incredibly consistent with the bass drum fill that he does, uh, which isn't on the original. So they'll go, oh. why don't y'all boom, boom, fade away. Yeah. Every single time. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of becomes for him, well, that's part of how that song goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not always just, you know, oh, I've got half a measure, which I'm going to take three quarters of a measure to do. Yeah. You know, it's it's really quite controlled. Yeah. Interesting thing that I learned from the, the Roger Daltrey autobiography was that for that song, one of the characteristics that people get excited about is that Roger Daltrey is sort of stuttering and they make a big, a big to do about that. But that was an accidental thing. Apparently when Pete Townsend had written the song, he was imagining something to be more of like a Bo Diddley kind of a beat. Dum, 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 dum. And it just wasn't sitting right. And then, Eventually, it morphs into like how we know it now, just more straight. And I, I think Keith had something to do with that too, just dun dun dun, just playing it forward. And Roger was not used to it being that way, so he was trying to tell Keith it's supposed to be dragging a little bit. It's supposed to have these things. So, like when he said, "Why don't you off 
cafe. He's, he was trying to communicate right. to, to, to Keith that you're supposed to, you're not supposed to be hitting it right on. It's supposed to be doing this. Right. But, but when they did it, their, their very illustrious manager said, that's perfect. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, you know, the, and again, this is something with the who maybe more than any other band. It's what we were saying earlier about people's understanding, people building up. You mentioned the manager. You're talking about Kit Lambert in this yeah, case. Yeah. Kit Lambert and, and Chris Stamp. And Chris Stamp. Yeah. Uh, but, that, but that comment is very much a Kit Lambert thing. Yeah. Um, and why let the truth get in the way of a, of a good line, right? Publicity line. So there are actually a bunch of different explanations slash stories slash whatever about how that came about. There were at least two demos, um, one of which has the stuttering on it. Um, it did start more like a blues uh, slowed down number. Um, you know, the other story that you'll hear floated is that was imitation of an earlier tune. Uh, you'll also hear that was because of being hopped up on amphetamines, which make one stutter. Um, well, that that's certainly what they want everybody yeah, yeah, exactly. to understand is the reason for it. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, the important bit is that it did get it temporarily banned uh, mm. from being played, yeah. um, not just because of the, the stuttering, which was a big part of it, but, but what he's stuttering sounds like he's going to ask you to do something a lot more, um, yeah. shall we say, detrimental than f- 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 fade away. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Exactly. Back to the beginning. I guess. I guess we don't really have to necessarily go through the entire history of the Who, uh, because it's lengthy, and um, and still going. Is it going? Are they going to keep? Are they going to play again? It sounds uh, to me that they they said that the only reason they would come back to America is to do a Quadrophenia tour because that's like the one thing that they haven't done. Oh well, no, they have done a Quadrophenia tour. Yeah, well, I think more of an anniversary thing, like what they did for Tommy. Yeah, or at least well, what they, Roger Daltrey did. Well, they kind of did that too. It, it's a weird thing. So actually, I saw them a, a few months ago. Oh. Uh, so they were on tour and they're doing, at that time, they were doing stuff on the stage with orchestra. Okay. And and that was cool. I hadn't seen them in a while. But actually, the time before that, that I saw them was a Quadrophenia um, oh, okay. performance, which hmm. which is great. You know, Quadrophenia is their masterpiece album. Which is not to take anything away from Who's Next, which is also a great album, though yeah. it though and it's also, a remnant album, you know, uh, Who's Next. Remnant? Yeah, it was it was originally part of a much larger project, which yes. kind of fell apart. Um, yes. But, of course, it, it does have so many classics on it. So it's, it's a great, great album. I hope I'll be misunderstood, but Quadrophenia is just a masterpiece. I feel like it's the kind of album where that, that worked in their favor because they were just able to take the the best bits of what otherwise would have been a double album. And, you know. Yeah. Pete eventually does release Lifehouse, which is a project, yeah. um, many, many, many years later. Yeah. For those of you who may not know, Lifehouse was technically going to be the follow-up album to Tommy. After finding the success that they've always been seeking, they landed on this whole concept album concept. Pete decided to make another one of these linear records with a pass-through narrative. The problem was Pete couldn't seem to explain what this concept was all about. According to Wikipedia, what Townsend was aiming to achieve in Lifehouse was to write music that could be adapted to reflect the personalities of the audience. To do this, he wanted to adapt a newly acquired hardware, VCS3 and ARP synthesizers, as well as a four-channel quadrophenic PA system, to create a machine capable of generating and combining personal music themes written from computerized biographical data. Ultimately, these thematic compounds would merge to form a universal chord. To help this process, the Who would encourage individuals to emerge from the audience and find a role in the music. He had planned on people attending the concert or musical experience to stay at the venue for up to six months until a sort of musical harmony was achieved. No one knew what the heck he was talking about, including his own bandmates, so the project was ultimately scrapped, and the songs from Lighthouse ended up being some of the Who's all-time classics, like Won't Get Fooled Again, Behind Blue Eyes, and Baba O'Reilly. Carry on. And, yo, I mean, that's part of that kind of through line that I kind of mentioned in passing earlier of the kind of connectivity of a lot of 
his output. So, you know, if you listen to, for example, Psychoderelict, um, which is a Pete solo album, <clears throat> it it is very much still in that vein of talking about a lot of the Lifehouse ideas, but also includes all of these snippets of, um, they're called Maya Baba on Psychoderelic, but this would, it's like the source material for Baba O'Reilly, for example. Yeah. So that, that iconic synth stuff. Yeah. Um, it kind of goes through that album, yeah. that, but the ideas of living on a grid and how dangerous that can be. I mean, he's writing this stuff in 1970, yeah. well before um, the World Wide Web. You know, the mm-hmm. internet was this kind of very new thing. Very few people knew about it, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and the web is, is, you know, nearly 20 years later. Sure. And Pete is... T- literally talking about okay well we're, we're gonna all live on this thing when we connect with each other and um and you can send music through it and then feel all those vibrations through it but also there's this great danger it could be very very bad yeah um watch out al gore yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the Who they start out like most bands do back in the old day. They're they're a cover band. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're still called the Detours, I believe, at this point. But they're transitioning into the Who, and they're slowly getting their members. It's funny that many of the members of the band started out with homemade instruments. Roger Daltrey saw a guitar in a window. He said, "I wanted one," and so he, I think, got pieces of one and tried to put it together. Didn't quite know how to attach the neck yeah. to the bridge. Yeah, not not the exactly body. the Frankenstrat, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. for Frankenstrat. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And he said, or last, or, last... or um, Brian May's, uh, you know, guitar well, for that. Well, the the physicist did a much better job yeah, with yeah, his ma- guitar. Imagine that. In fact, I have one as well. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Nobody has uh, his original. Yeah. Nobody has yeah. Roger's original guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's probably Roger doesn't have it. That's right. You know, once he started farming, he needed some firewood. So funny enough, the, when the very first second member of the who was their bass player john Entwistle. in those days it was very hard to find a bass player it seemed and roger had spotted john walking around with this giant guitar on his back larger than any guitar he'd seen and he says i bet that's a bass right and and hits him up and he, and he says hey you want to join a band and he's like maybe how much money you guys make and he's like oh tons we got a manager these are all lies, of course. Right. But anyways, does enough to convince him to to join the group. Uh, shortly after that, this, I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing here. Shortly after that, they talk his pot-smoking art school friend, Pete Townsend, to join the group as well. And then that is sort of the beginning of the group. Yeah. And as things go on, I mean, they have another singer at this point. Yeah, Colin. So, um, you know, the detours... Um, yeah, you're right. They're essentially a cover band. They're also it's R and B, yeah, mostly, and and, so, so, and you know top ten sort of thing, hits of the day. Yeah, and is Roger uh, a guitar? Is a guitar player in the group at this point? Right. Uh yeah. Um, though he does end up, you know, singing also, and so yeah, there is this kind of transition. The 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 big thing, the thing that made the Who the Who, of course, was when Keith joined. Of course, they got rid of. Um, Doug Sandum. Now, um, the, so. one of the story goes that Keith approached them and said, yeah. you should get rid of your drummer because I'm better. Yeah, though I think they were using an interim drummer at that point because I think Doug had been out. But again, my, my memory might be a little bit hazy on that. But but the, it's it's fairly consistent about Keith showing up ginger from head to toe ginger suit gin, holding a glass of you know ginger ale yeah um <sighs> or ginger beer and saying i can play better than him yeah. you know going up and you know messing up whoever the drummer was drum set you know the hi-hat stopped working and yeah whatever. Yeah, yeah yeah contrary to popular belief i mean, keith rarely used hi-hat but it used it more often than people think mm. um i think on the studio albums certainly but live shows, I don't think so. Yeah, Many of the lives, it's just a bunch of cymbals. Well, he, he developed that kind of cross kit. Uh, I'm going to use ride cymbal as, uh, or I'm going to use craft cymbals as ride cymbals or just, you know, a wall of whoosh. Yes, absolutely. Um, Which uh, I, I, for when I first moved to New York, I am a multi-instrumentalist. And the first gig that I could get was 
as a drummer for a Who tribute band. And so I practiced a lot yeah. because, you know, Keith not only is a very good drummer, but he's a very unique drummer. So I was doing everything in my power to sort of learn his little tricks. And he's got very strange tricks. One of them, for instance, we have the double bass pedal. The double bass pedal primarily is is played as as most right-handed people do. Your first beat will be on your right foot. So it'll be like this and like that. And you'll start it with your 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 right foot. Keith famously would start it with his left foot. He would do it just goofy foot backwards and nobody could understand how his brain would work to be able to do that. One of the many things. So we have that. And then we also have, yes, the cross symbol. He would have a symbol on each side of the drum set and he would play them both back and forth by swinging his arm back and forth. Yeah. So he was essentially, you know, the, one of the first drummers to be a focal point for people. And in fact, always wanted to be at the front of the stage. Well, yeah, I was about to say exactly right. Um, that he wasn't about to be upstaged by some poxy singer. No. Um, you know, and, in, and in fact, when he was in the back, he made it a point to throw drumsticks at Roger all night. <laughs> details, details. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it was Jim Keltner uh, after Keith died was just talking about Keith and he, and he said something really quite interesting. He said um, that Keith had more charisma than any other drummer outside of Gene Krupa. <laughs> because a lot of the kind of mannerisms that Keith uses, you can see the Krupa influence there. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there are other kind of great, great jazz and big band drummers like um, Buddy Rich and, yeah. and Louis Belson, speaking about double bass technique. Sure. Louis Belson, one of the great early double bass players. Uh, but Keith, I think, is is really kind of almost channeling that kind of uh, energy yeah. of, of Gene Krupa. It felt very much in those days, frequently the drummer, all they had to do to be in a band was own a drum set. Yeah. There's a lot of... Not, in the early days, that's very much true. Very a lot of unnoteworthy drummers out there that nobody talks about for rightful reasons. Uh, yeah. But Keith Moon remains legendary and influential to, to all drummers. Well, you know, it's been said that he... he wasn't the greatest drummer, but he was the only drummer for the Who. Yes. You know, I mean, I, Pete at one point said, you know, I wasn't a great drummer. I, I didn't particularly like his drumming. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but that it it's what you were saying earlier about, okay, but it is in fact the exact thing you need for so much of what their output. I think yeah. actually that after he dies, something quite important to understand just in terms of the, the point uh, in the history of the band, is they were already threatening to kick him out. Yeah, his, so his they, drumming skills had gotten pretty poor. Yeah, he he was having issues, though he was somewhat um, on the rebound, if you'll pardon the phrase. Um, so Kenny was brought in, among other things, because they weren't looking to replace Keith. They were looking for, you know, this fresh approach. And Kenny sometimes over the years has been a you know, slagged a little bit. Yeah, um, unfortunately and, so. Yeah, very unfortunately so. And, you know, that that first tour that they did with him, he was really excellent and really held the band together. You know, and they had done a lot of stuff um, with Kenny over the years individually and and yeah, collectively to some degree. So it's not like he was a total stranger. Far sure. from it. I mean, that was part of one of the reasons he was brought in was, I mean, he was in Small Faces, he was in Faces. Mm -hmm. um, he had played with everybody. Yeah. Um, and so they knew him. He was from where they came from. Sure. On paper, he was the perfect choice. Yeah. And he did a lot of really good, good stuff. Uh, but but back to Keith and, and his role in The Who. Uh, it, it's often said that Whereas most drummers are sort of the foundation, like keeping the rhythm of the whole train moving along. In this instance, it wasn't him. He was being more of like the orchestral, adding all the filler. Uh, the actual person that was keeping everything together was their bass player, John Entwistle. 
who was also not only keeping keeping the beat intact, was also playing it like a, a rhythm guitar on top of things so that it would allow more room for Pete to go a little crazy and a little more experimental. So it was kind of, they were just shifting all of their roles around. Yeah, no, nobody quite did what on paper they should have been doing. Yes. Um, though, you know, I slightly disagree with one of the characterizations, um, not fully though, um, is... You know, John was very adamant that he was not a bass player. He was a bass guitar player. Okay. And uh, yeah, and for us, we're just like, okay, John, give it up. But but here's the thing, you know, uh, at a certain point, he develops this very distinct sound where it's very treble heavy. Yeah. fills in with a lot of basically lead guitar stuff. So Pete has this kind of, you know, between that and and Keith doing his thing, uh, almost like a, a sonic blanket that he can work over. So yeah. this is why you get so many moments where it's just, here's a big power chord. I'm going to let this ring. Okay, maybe I'll let it feedback, whatever. Yeah. And the whole song doesn't collapse and and you know the the meter doesn't go out the window and yeah, yeah. rhythm and all that so um in a certain way keith is kind of binding them to get in all of his craziness there there's that kind of binding between lead guitar which is on a bass guitar and rhythm slash atmospherics often yeah but pete he has his kind of go-to trick things that he'll often employ, both compositionally but also just stylistically. So there's, there's a, a lot of tunes um, where he gets a kind of faux flamenco thing going, yeah, yeah, for yeah. example. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, some of them are obvious you get at the beginning of uh, Anyway, Anywhere, Anyhow. Yeah. But it comes in at these other spots. So, you know, th in that way, as a group, they're kind of, um, th they know their craft. They know what trick is going to work to get this effect and that, whatever. Yes. So it's a kind of a larger compositional thing. Yes. But, you know, getting back to your point, if I could just digress for one second, um, this is going back five hours or whatever for in, in, in the podcast, um, about being kind of Roger's band. Um, it, all of the bands, I mean, every last one of them, even the Beatles are making demos, you know, for songs and okay, this is how it goes and teach it to the band, whatever. But I think that in the Who's case, there's an important difference about Pete's demos. Because for Pete, it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm going to show you how this tune goes. And there are certain demos that are very much like that. But for Pete, because of that, uh, particularly in the very early days, that power struggle, his demos have to sell the song to the band. So, I mean, if, if if John Lennon comes in with a demo and says, here's the song, it's not like the Beatles are going to say, well, we're not going to do that one. Yeah. Right? But in the early days, Pete might come in. And in, and to some degree, this lasts their entire career. You know, Pete, even as late as Who by Numbers or even It's Hard, there are all these demos like, yeah, uh, you know, we, we, we like that one. We don't like that one. We'll do that one, whatever. And so, I mean, Pete's demos, some of them are, absolutely extraordinary and uh you know full 24 track um mm -hmm. extravaganzas they sound amazing and there yeah. there are more than one or two that are frankly just better than the who's final product that's good oh yeah a lot of his writing 
he he really means it. You know, Roger has oh, yeah. to find a voice, particularly yes. in the early days. You know, you give him something like Happy Jack. I mean, this is a, a hard East Ender, mm-hmm. you know, who's been singing um, rhythm and blues numbers, trying to be American, but also with swagger and all that. And, yeah. Okay, well, there's this guy who lives on an island who has a furry donkey and kids make fun of him. You know, yeah. encapsulate that in your performance, sure, Roger. Sure, it's like, sure. how the hell do I even approach this? Yeah. You know, but for 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 Pete, in so many of his songs, they're often based on real life events. Not always, but often. And so when he's talking about, you know, uh, you better, you know, love me and all this, he's yeah, he it's very it. specific about yeah, who yeah, he's yeah. thinking about. Yeah, he means it. All that. Yeah, right. So. In in many essences, Roger is really an actor in a lot of these things. Yeah. He's a singer and kudos to uh, the, the director of Tommy for recognizing that he had this potential to be an actor because Roger was actually surprised to get the part in the first place. Um, But Ken Ken Russell. Yeah. Ken Russell. Exactly. But very much, you know, Roger had, had to always just interpret, Pete's energy with the songs that he was writing and creating. And, and as time goes on, Roger has to develop more different voices and sounds and, and approaches to, to the music, which ends up being sort of a blessing. Like he's the first to say he didn't want to end up being like a Mick Jagger where every song that's sung by Mick Jagger sounds like Mick Jagger. Jagger, It's got the same thing. So especially as I start getting into Tommy, that's when he is, given license to really find different voices. Like it's, you know, like I'm a boy and, and you know, all the different arcs that the storyline goes through and all the different characters he has to be, you know, he, he, he's able to find these. And, and actually he says, this is where he really becomes who he is. Yeah. Well, it, there are a couple of things to know about that. First off, it's often been said, and again, this is not an original idea of mine, uh, that The Who is the greatest cover band of all time. And they're not talking about, okay, this is their version of pick your classic R&B. Uh, they're talking about, yeah, like these are Pete's things yeah. and The Who is doing their cover of it. Sure. Um, but I mean, that's so, really honestly most bands. There's a lot of bands where somebody's bringing the song and then the band comes up with their version. Yeah, the, the but very often that version is quite different from what, you know, was kind of the demo. Sure. Uh, and it kind of develops. And, you know, when often when Pete would do the demo, he'd do the drums like Keith might do the drums. He'd do, you know, the bass like, um, well, nobody could do it quite like Entwistle, yeah. but, you know, a, a reasonable facsimile or whatever. But, you know, Tommy, uh, of course, is their last-ditch hope attempt. Um, They're in a very, very strange time. Um, And so I think, yes, Roger is kind of finding himself when they're recording the album. It's the last one where where Kit Lambert is really overseeing things and and is twiddling knobs Mm -hmm. in the studio. For as great an album as it is, and I do mean that seriously, they took a real long time to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the last album that doesn't sound great, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, you got Glenn Johns coming in uh, after this. Yes. Uh, of course, it's going to say, you know, compare it with what comes right after. So you get Live at Leeds, and then you get Who's Next. Yeah. So from pure song standpoint, I mean, the downbeat of the overture, they're not together. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the very, very first thing you hear on that album is not, Bam, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> Which is very much but, the who. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but so Roger kind of coming into his own, it doesn't really happen on the album. Uh, it, it happens when they're doing the tour, when they're performing it, when it's just four of them. Which mm-hmm. is unbelievable, yeah. you know. And if you don't mind, I, I'd like to put a pin in this and we'll definitely come back to it because there's there's another... I mean, there's a number of noteworthy things to bring up, but the main one, as we were talking about, this is being Roger's band. Roger gets kicked out of the band a bit before Tommy. Yeah, I'm not sure what the time frame is, but it's it's quite a bit for uh, before this. And the reason is, is uh, you know, the Who is very well known for their drug use, except for one member. Roger very early on said that he didn't want to phone in his work. He 
took his job as a vocalist and as a frontman very, very seriously. So when everybody else was starting to get into amphetamines and get into the harder drugs, Roger always stayed away from it. And over time, obviously, his bandmates did not have the exact same approach to their their livelihoods. And they were apparently taking what they were calling at this time purples. And I love how the drugs in those days were all just a color. Yeah, yeah, the blues, blues, the the reds. So they took the purples and they were playing so fast and so loud that Roger couldn't keep up. So he was getting so frustrated. He took, he rifled through Keith Moon's stash and took all of his drugs and flushed them down the toilet. And so I might've even been mid song that Keith rushes over is like, I need another, I need another pill. And Roger's like, no, well, no, it's Keith Moon. I need another handful of pills. I need, <laughs> yeah, okay, yes, forgive me. You are hundred percent correct. Uh, and Roger says, ah, well, good luck. Cause I threw them all away. And then Keith has a little bit of a temper tantrum. And then notoriously they have a fist fight after this show. Uh, they end up uh, heading back to their home base and Roger is not in the same vehicle. He is sent home in his own vehicle. And then when he gets home, he is, he's told that he has uh, been excused from the group. Yes. He's, his services are no longer required. Yes. And uh, he's pretty depressed, but he says, you know what? That's all right. I'm just going to carry on. So he starts putting together like a rhythm and blues band, like a, like a big group. Yeah. He's like, he's, he's a, he's a blue collar worker. He's like, this is what I do. What am I going to do now? I go back to uh, making tea for the construction crews which actually was one of his side jobs, right? Yeah. He was like the team man for, for um, yeah, a, con- a construction crew. Uh, but he, he says he's going to land on his feet, and then it doesn't take the who very long. And by the who, I actually mean Kit Lambert. He's the one who kind of sees the who carry on with a couple of shows and says, now we've messed with the recipe. We've taken the baked beans out. Right. <laughs> we got to bring them back in. Yeah. So they... They, they they say, okay, you can still be in the group. But Roger says that ever since this incident, he was received very lukewarmly from the rest of the group. They're not really very happy that he's back in. And there's a big divide because, you know, he's the straight and narrow and everybody else is into drugs. So, Well, rather famously, the, the group um, for most of their career up till 80, well, 78, um, they're not friends. No. Um, you know, they're, they're just not. I mean, Keith and, and John are. Uh, they were, yes. you know, rather famously going to be creating a group called Led Zeppelin. Yes. Um, you know, which kind of took a different turn, as we all know. Yeah. But um, they did uh, They did put out one one song as that lineup with Keith Moon on drums with Jimmy Page. Oh, uh, well, you're talking about Bex Bolero, probably. Yes, I am. Yeah. The recording of this song happened in 1966 and was billed as the Jeff Beck Group. The lineup is Jeff Beck along with Keith Moon, Jimmy Page, and John Paul Jones, and apparently the only keyboardist in existence at that time, Nicky Hopkins. John Entwistle was actually supposed to be the bass player of the session, still as a supergroup of sorts as Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page were making their way out of the Yardbirds. But John didn't show up, so they called another John, John Paul Jones, making this sort of the first unofficial Led Zeppelin recording. They even coined the name Led Zeppelin around this time, Keith famously saying the band would go over like a lead balloon, John Entwistle saying more like a Led Zeppelin. Now, John and Keith weren't having a good relationship with The Who at this point, so it was a purposeful thing on their part to join forces with these musicians and show the world perhaps Keith could potentially find another musical outlet. Pete Townsend didn't like that one bit. More on that later. Carry on. Um, yeah, that, I mean, Keith, uh, he appeared in concert with Led Zeppelin, um, uh, um, as a kind of guest and oh, wow. it is what it is. Yeah. Um, they're respected to whatever degree by their contemporaries, but you know, it's like your kid brother's band. And so universally it's amazing how many British rockers say, oh, lovely guys don't like their music. I mean, Pete will say it, Keith. Richards, you know, yeah. all this thing. And and I think in, in Pete's case, it's it's probably, it's that lingering thing of, you tried to steal my band. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you, you did almost take away, you know, Keith and John, and that would, you know, 
screwed me over a bit. But alas, Roger does stay in the group, and that and that's where <laughs> that's that's where we. He, Roger says that he doesn't feel like he's a part of the gang, and and once again, going back now to Tommy, he says that when they started to bring that piece of music live, that is where they all sort of reformed their bond with each other because yeah. they were doing something really noteworthy and and something that had never been done before like a rock opera is it truly the first rock opera i feel like that might have been no thing before. no i mean well first off i mean that's a very loaded question you yeah. can start with the fact that it's not it's really not an opera, opera. Yeah. <laughs> um you know at i think at at best you could call it a song cycle maybe if you want to get very lofty you could consider a, a type of cantata whether it's a sacred or a secular cantata you could make mm. your arguments on both ends it's not really an opera but it doesn't really matter yeah um the idea of kind of very distinctly story driven kind of collections of things yeah um where it it's very purposefully done it had been done uh, at least a few times before um and what I mean by very distinctly is there are people, for example, who will say, um, you know, Sgt. Pepper's is a concept album um, and say, OK, well, what's the concept? What's the concept? <laughs> and I say, well, you know, it's um, the band not being the band and being this other band. And so it starts with Sgt. Pepper's, it starts with the audience, it starts with the tune up and all that. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the end and it's like, oh, right, let's try to remember that. And so they do the reprise and they get the audience and, hey, we were Sgt. Pepper's, that's who we've been, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and people also, it's from Allen Ginsberg down, have made these claims of, you know, the great cohesion of the album, which is not dissing Sgt. Pepper's great album. Of course. But what I mean about having a kind of narrative is exactly that so even you take something like a quick one which you mentioned earlier that's a pastiche i mean there's no two ways about it it's barely cohesive musically yeah (laughs) um their rock and roll circus performance is much better than the the um oh yeah the the studio recording on the quintessential that's what's on the rushmore soundtrack Yeah. yeah it is it's you know Unbelievable. Um, but you have, for example, you know, we talked about small faces earlier. Right? I mentioned them in passing. Uh, and they've got happiness stand. Once upon a time in a land of dreams, where the sky was silky, something full of colored dreams. I mean, it's not a full-length, quote-unquote, rock opera, but it is a full side. Okay. Uh, and that has a beginning, middle, end. It's got a story. It's got Stanley Unwin doing narrative. Um, hmm. You know, so the idea, I think what we have to basically understand is things like this in in what eventually will be called some very pretentiously like prog ideas are already well there. And, and everybody's yeah. kind of searching for what am I going to do next? What's going to be the big thing? Sure. Um, but in terms of scope... I don't think there's really a predecessor to Tommy. Yeah. You know, it's funny, earlier you mentioned that The Who kind of escaped that um, stamp of being dinosaurs when yeah. the punks had come around, uh, which is very much true. I mean, that that dust-up that he had with the, the Sex Pistols, which inspired Who Are You, you know, rather famously, I think it was Paul Cook's, uh, Pete's completely drunk out of his mind and saying, oh, yeah, we're finished and all this. And I think it was Paul Cook said, you know, but but we really love The Who. You know, please don't tell me that this is happening. Yeah. But uh, funny enough, uh, a lot of the punk groups really respected and, and liked and, in fact, loved The Beatles. They might not have gone on record. And I think, you know, certainly for The Beatles, it's, it's such a singular thing in music history. And it, it's not a question of you like them or you don't like them. Because that that's it's so not even about that. Yeah, it's, you know? it's irrelevant. I mean, you should like yeah. them, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. But <laughs> regardless, they did still change everything. Yeah, and, and and the way that we do music these days is largely based around what they did. Yeah, when they changed the rules. Yeah. So, so the whole con the whole concept of you can write your own songs in your own band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Starting there, and also they can be, you know just sort of changing the way that you, the, the, the things that we take for granted these days, no. like the, like the first chord of hard day's night or 
you know, feedback or all of this stuff. It's just like, there's a mountain of things that they, they changed. Yeah. Well, or that's that's also another podcast. Yeah. Or at least brought to the, brought to the forefront. And, you know, I mean, rather famously the, even in their name, it's kind of homage to Buddy Holly, who is already, you know, I'm multi-tracking, but also writing, producing. As Keith Mm -hmm. Richards pointed out, he was the whole package. Yeah. Right. As a self-contained unit, as he called them. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, nobody comes out of the ether, you yeah. know, fully formed. Every it's, This one's influencing that one, this, oh, I'll nick that idea and mm-hmm. take it and do whatever. Yeah. So. so bringing this over to Tommy. Yeah. Folks, we'll bring this back over to Tommy for part two of our deep dive talk on the Who. There's simply too much to talk about here, so we'll save the riveting conclusion for next time, including the cooking and eating of the traditional English fry-up breakfast. Keep your eyes on the dial for round two, which should hit your feed in a week or two. Don't forget to pass the word out to your friends about this bank of beer food, the podcast. I do appreciate it. Until then, I'm your host, Nathan Palin, saying cook on a rock out. Ciao, ciao.